0: What's up everyone welcome to war machine a podcast for theological nomads Justin and I recently spoke with Thomas J Ord about his most recent book which is called The Death of Omnipotence and the Birth of Emip Amip- I still can't fucking say it Emipotence and the birth of Emipot and a new job uh, anyway, he in the book, he outlines many of the reasons why omnipotence is no longer credible uh, or salvageable and uh, offers an alternative view of divine power. It was a really fun conversation. Tom is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He's written and edited more than 30 books and currently directs a doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary and the Center for Open and Relational Theology. He's known for his contributions to research on love, open and relational theology, science and religion, and freedom and relationships for transformation. Uh, So needless to say, this conversation is more explicitly theological than uh, than usual. Uh, And then we also get into some of the challenges that come along with being a more progressive voice in a conservative institution a tale as old as time unfortunately anyway I hope you enjoy the conversation we're at warmachinepodcast.com. and here's tom ord peace hey 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 tom hello so, how's it going
1: and justin oh have you two met i don't we think have.
2: So. We, we have we have we have i'm i'm I'm, I'm, uh working with um joe smith on a book oh oh okay yes okay (laughs) sorry about that no no worries that was many moons back (laughs) at at some point we are gonna finish that we're getting close (laughs) (laughs) i've
1: even forgot the topic what's the topic of the book you're doing with joe
2: Mountains, um, using mountains as a framing device for doing an intro to the Bible for
1: basically for progressive Christians. Yes. Now that uh, that rings a bell now.
0: Yeah, that could go along with the cloud of the impossible, the mountain, the mountain of something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Tom, it's good to see you, man. Um, how was uh, Theology Beer Camp?
1: <laughs> good time it was yeah uh, it's the second time i've been so i kind of knew what to expect although i think the audience was twice as big as last time so lots nice. of people i was actually very pleasantly surprised the the biggest surprise the most enjoyment i had was listening to flamey grant i thought this was like a novelty act or something and it turns out she can sing i was like really impressed
0: okay so, yeah i wasn't sure what to because you know justin and i were initially supposed to go
1: oh were you uh, uh. yeah
0: and then you know some different things came up and we weren't able to but um yeah i saw that she was a uh, she was added to the um to the roster and i was like what flaming grant what is this and i had the same response you did i was like this has got to be like a gimmick or something like that <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad to hear that it was um you know meaningful in some way
1: Yeah, she's a good uh, lyricist, got a good voice, average guitar player, not bad, but not great. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, did a great job.
0: Nice. Well, yeah, thanks for uh, reaching out to me and and sending Justin and I a copy of of your book. Um, (laughs) I just finished reading it maybe 20 minutes ago.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's very fresh.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I like to cram for the test. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, and I want to talk to uh, about the the ideas in in the book, of course. But you know, I think uh, there's going to be people in our audience who who aren't uh, necessarily familiar with you and your your work. So, yeah, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a, a bit of background on you in terms of your theological trajectory, or
1: yeah, I grew up in the holiness tradition of Christianity, and I'm still an ordained minister in that tradition, although gotten in significant trouble lately and we'll see how long they keep me. We're going to talk about Uh, that too. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That meant for me asking big questions about God, you know, from a very early age, being a regular attender of church, I had parents who tried to model the Christian life and, um, you know, God was at the center of how I thought about life. And then late in my college career, when I was a, uh, a religion major. I took a course in philosophy of religion. And even though I was a big time evangelist, you know, campus crusade for Christ, for spiritual laws, sharing Jesus with people all the time, I came across really smart people who were atheists, agnostics, folks of other religious traditions. And their essays kind of pulled the rug out from under my belief in God. I remember coming to pick up my fiancee, who's now my wife, her getting into the car as we headed out for dinner, and I turning to her and saying, I don't believe in God anymore. I was the kind of person who kept at the spiritual quest because my reasons for not believing in God weren't, you know, based around moral failures by Christian leaders or my desire to sell my wild oats or something like that. They were intellectual issues for me. And I eventually came back to thinking it was more plausible than not that there's a God. And that plausibility rested fundamentally on two issues. One, I wanted to believe life had ultimate meaning, and I couldn't see how I could do that if there wasn't something like a ground of meaning that most people call God. And secondly, I knew I had deep intuitions about love and that I ought to be a loving person, that in some sense, love was the answer. And I couldn't make good sense of those intuitions if there wasn't something like a lover who was the basis for them. And so from that point, my early 20s, I kind of slowly started building back a theology that I now call Open and Relational Theology. I direct the Center for Open and Relational Theology now, as well as a doctoral program that's at Northwind Theological Seminary on Open and Relational Theology. So there's a few highlights for you.
2: So you you mentioned that uh, you were part of the holiness tradition. You're ordained Nazarene, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, Church of Nazarene. Yeah, I um I was telling Matt before we started— that uh, a lecture that you gave at uh, my alma mater, which was Eastern Nazarene College, I think you were brought there probably by Eric Severson would be my guess. Okay, um, was the first lecture I ever saw with a professional theologian giving a lecture. Cool. Um, so huh. I, 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 I guess uh, you know I, I
1: can blame you. I guess <laughs> <laughs> plenty of people have, Justin. Plenty of people have. <laughs> Maybe not you in particular, but blame me for lots of things. <laughs> So
2: maybe to hop a little bit into the some, some content here, you, you mentioned this idea of ultimate meaning, and I, I wonder if you could unpack a little bit what you mean by ultimate meaning and how you differentiate that from just meaning in general. Right, that, that it's, It seems really clear that we wouldn't need... a a god, a divine being, in order to have mundane meaning, like our words could have meanings without a god, Um, we could find our job meaningful. Um, And I assume when you say ultimate meaning, you don't mean those. So I'm I'm curious what you mean by ultimate meaning in that context.
1: Yeah, I I had and still have a worry uh, of what philosophers might call extreme relativism. That is, thinking that what is meaningful, what is right, what is most valuable, is solely up to the individual. And when that's the case and you have competing claims, it's hard to know how you arbitrate which one has is closer to the truth. And although I readily recognize that even someone like me who believes in ultimate meaning has a hard time arbitrating these uh, differing accounts of values, uh, I find it helpful to think that there is some standard, even if I can't know it fully, by which uh, such differences could be adjudicated, such that I can even critique my own self when I think that things ought to be one way or another, and I say, okay, is this purely my own subjective preference, or do I think there's something bigger that transcends my own preference? And that's the faith claim. I think it's a plausible claim that uh, there is that something that we call God.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. Uh, I wasn't planning on getting into the deep end right away, but um,
1: <laughs> Sorry, I mean, since,
0: no, it's, it's all good. It's, since we're talking about how one goes about arbitrating ultimate meeting, it's one thing to say or to point out the problem of, of arbitration, but then it's another thing to speak to a particular method or how do you go about arbitrating ultimate meeting and, and how does it differ from how others
1: do it? Yeah. Well, first of all, I say that this arbitration cannot be done uh, in such a way that you find absolute certainty that you've found meaning in its fullness, It's, its full truthfulness, we might say. Then I think it involves, at least for me, trying to account for experience broadly understood, but especially personally understood. After all, I know my own experience better than anyone else's. We might even argue that's the only thing I know, but... I'm not a solipsist so I won't go down that path. So then the question is how do you then give an account of what you think ultimate meaning is? And here I'm probably fairly traditional in that I think I want to draw from a variety of sources beyond my personal experience or we might say filtered through my personal experiences sources like science, the arts, sacred texts, traditions, wisdom, sages, exemplars. I'm also Very drawn to the work of Alfred North Whitehead and his attempt to try to find meaning or make ultimate sense in a process metaphysics. And his way of going about it, I think, is a nice overview or or summary in which he says he's trying to create a scheme that is coherent within itself, that's logical, that's adequate to the facts as we can understand them, but also applicable. And that last one, I think, is often overlooked because applicable it seems to me has something to do with the pragmatic value of the claims in other words i think there's something to be said for a claim about meaning if it helps make the world a better place or to put it in language i'm use more often if it prompts me to be a more loving person now i realize that that can get circular that you know what counts as love you have to adjudicate that but those are the kinds of things i think we were always in a speculative stance, bringing together as much information as we can, never coming to full and absolute truth, but making cases for the greater plausibility of things compared to other options.
0: That seems reasonable. I mean, on one hand, it certainly qualifies any kind of claim of ultimacy by saying that there's a sort of, you know, pragmatic thrust to it, even if we acknowledge that that is the case. um, I'm on board with the uh, radical empiricism in in a number okay. of different a number of different registers, but I think that for me the leap to claims of ultimacy in some sort of uh, strict ontological sense or something like this would would be difficult for me to uh, make those kinds of claims.
1: Yeah, it should be difficult for everyone mm-hmm. if by difficult we mean you know um, it's a task that we take on.
2: We kind of brought you here under the auspices of of, of your new book, um, <laughs> The Death of Omnipotence and the Birth of Omnipotence. And I wonder if maybe to set the groundwork before we follow some of those tangents, if you could just talk a little bit about what is omnipotence and why is it a problem? Like if you could kind of set that kind of basic groundwork of your book for the audience.
1: Uh, I define omnipotence in three ways, drawing from major figures, mostly in Christianity, but there's a few Jewish and and uh, scholars of Islam in the book. And uh, the three major ways in which omnipotence is understood by these scholars, such as Augustine, Aquinas, etc., is that God is omnipotent if God can do absolutely anything, or omnipotent if God exerts all power that's ever exerted, or God is omnipotent if God is able to control anyone or anything. Now, the first one that God is able to do absolutely anything, uh, as you know from reading the book, I show why that always has to be qualified, and even those who make that claim end up qualifying it and saying there are things God can't do. The second claim that God is the one who exerts all power is usually under the rubric of theological determinism and associated with people like John Calvin, although there's debates on whether or not he was really that. But anyway, it's the idea that you and I think we have power, we think we have freedom, we think creatures in the world exert power, but really it's God who's running everything. Those first two, I think, are um, less common today, at least amongst thinking people. Uh, I guess that that wasn't very kind. At least amongst intellectually sophisticated people. (laughs) But it's the third one. God is omnipotent insofar as God is able to control anyone or anything. Now, notice I'm not saying God is always controlling everyone and everything. I'm just saying God has the capacity to control anyone or anything at any time. And that's the one I think has the most robust argument in favor of it, even though I want to reject it. So by omnipotence, I mean one of those three things. Oh, then I was supposed to talk about the problems, right? Yeah, yeah. So so <laughs> laying those out,
2: um, you know, that sounds nice. We've got big, powerful daddy in the sky who can solve all our problems. Why would we not want this?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Well, some of the problems are merely conceptual in the sense that saying God is able to do absolutely anything, philosophers and theologians have seen the problems with that from the get-go. Just about everybody, except Descartes maybe, uh, wants to say God can't do what is illogical. God can't make a married bachelor. God can't make one plus one equal 367. And then a lot, but not all, theologians have said there's some things God can't do because to do them would be to go against God's nature. So God can't do anything if anything includes uh, stopping existing or being ignorant of some situation whatever. And then I add on lots of other things that we could go into. So uh, the idea that God can do anything has lots of conceptual problems that have been noted for quite some time. The idea that God is omnipotent in the sense of exerting all power creates problems for understanding our own sense of free will and agency, as well as the free will and agency of others in our world. And it creates huge problems for moral responsibility. If it's the case that we don't really exert any power, but God does it all, then every bad thing that happens is God, you know, caused by God. If you hate Donald Trump, you have to suck it up because God caused everything Donald Trump did, or Joe Biden, or whoever. Um, so there's major problems there. I think most people have understood those. The third set of problems that I talk about in this book quite a bit. Uh, has to do with the idea that God could control others, not just free will creatures but even you know cells and organisms. And it's been fairly common, especially in in recent uh, you know last let's say century or so, for theologians to give some kind of a free will defense for why creatures have freedom and why God doesn't prevent evil. And so they'll say something like um, yes, there's evil in the world' Yes, God is omnipotent, but God is freely choosing to give freedom to creatures, at least complex creatures, and God chooses, at least most of the time, not to control those creatures. People who offer this argument will sometimes say God controls all the smaller entities of reality, This fits nicely into views of miracles, for instance, in which God occasionally intervenes to control a situation to bring about some result. There's lots of problems with that approach, though, and the one that I address most in the book is the problem of evil, and that is if you say God has the real ability to prevent the genuine evils of the world, and if you say God is perfectly loving, you have to wonder why God doesn't stop the crap that we endure. Uh, the genuine evil, those things that make the world worse than it otherwise might have been. There are many problems, but that's probably the most obvious to most people.
0: Yeah. I mean, a lot of what you're saying resonates with me as someone who grew up in the church and really became aware of, I guess, (laughs) I didn't have the vocabulary at the time, of course, but became aware of theology when the question of theodicy came up when I was like 10 or 11, and this is obviously intimately related um, to the question of omnipotence. Right. Um, and so I think you're right. I mean, I think omnipotence is, is a terrible theological mistake. Um, <laughs> it's ethically disastrous. But it's also the very much the understanding of God that most people have.
1: That's right.
0: Um, which is hard to uh, kind of pull apart on one hand. And maybe we can talk more about uh, what the implications are that of that are. But why don't you go ahead and um, give us your alternate, well, your alternate proposal to okay. omnipotence?
1: Yeah. Before I do that, let me agree with you that most people think of God as omnipotent, and not only most, just sort of regular people on the street. Most scholars, most Christian philosophers, in fact, when this book came out, I had several friends who are uh, Christians and philosophers, you know, give me reasons why we should, they want to keep omnipotence. They agreed with my criticisms, but the word is so valuable to them that they want to stick to it and, you know, maybe define it as maximal divine power or something like that, uh, which I think says something it, Interesting about the power of words in our not only present day psychology, but in the tradition. I, however, think we ought to get rid of the word. I think it's unsalvageable. And so I propose an alternative, what I call amipotence. AMI is the prefix in Latin for love, potence for influence or power. So my proposal is that we should think about God's power as the power of uncontrolling love. And I write a great deal about what that means in terms of putting love logically prior to power in God's nature. And that's a sophisticated way of saying we should understand what God is able to do from the lens of God's love rather than trying to make the, the two attributes equal or, you know, starting with power and then trying to figure out love, which is what I think most, uh, at least people in the Reformed tradition do. And so the proposal is that if God's love is inherently uncontrolling, then whatever we mean by God's power, it cannot include the ability to control creatures or creation. And then, of course, that's going to be very convenient for me as I go to try to address the reasons people don't believe in God, including the problem of evil, because then I can say, well, this God of love is active in the world is uh active in your life but doesn't have the power to control you or the circumstances and therefore is not responsible not culpable for failing to prevent the evils in your life or you see in the world.
0: Yeah, not responsible uh, and this is something else you you address in the book a couple times you push back against the argument I guess you anticipate that this revised uh understanding of divine power is really a divine impotence. You know, I've heard this summarized in different ways. God can't, and uh, sometimes I'm just like, well, what's the difference between God can't and God won't? Like, uh, like practically, why the fuck do I care?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, let <laughs> me give you a reason to care because that's right. a great, great question. I tell you the reason to care is because I get letters from people who've read my book, God Can't, who were told God won't. And they interpreted that to mean God could, but God chooses not to. So, one woman wrote me about being sexually molested by her brothers for years and her having a dream that Jesus came to her in the midst of her being molested and stood next to her holding her hand. And she said she felt comforted for a day or two until she realized he was there and didn't try to stop it. So, the God who won't prevent evil as if God could, but chooses not to, well, that God sucks. I mean, that's a bad parent. (laughs) Like, you know what? I would put it this way. If you hire a babysitter for your kids and the babysitter could stop something bad from happening to them, but chooses not to, you think that babysitter would suck. And yet most people think that God has the kind of power to prevent genuine evils, but for some mysterious reason, chooses not to. So saying that God can't single-handedly prevent evil—that makes a big difference. <laughs> I,
0: I really do appreciate that uh, that example of you know you wouldn't hire God as your babysitter if you know God was just gonna you know stand by and you know not do anything if your kid was getting uh, hit by a car or something like this, right? But I also wouldn't hire the God who can't. Like that—that—that mm. that, that God is not somebody that I would bring into my home. I would buy—I would hire somebody who is more capable. Or I, if, if a babysitter wasn't available, I'd just be like, okay, I'm not going out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I, I just, I, I guess, if the power of God is not to control, but is to inspire, to lure in more white Hidean terms, and yet that power doesn't seem adequate to bring about the good, how do you account for that?
1: Yeah. So I would say it's adequate to bring about the good insofar as creatures cooperate with God, but not adequate to bring about the good single-handedly. So in the scheme I'm proposing, God is a necessary cause in every event in the world, but never a sufficient cause. So um, would you hire God to be your babysitter if God can't? Well, if there was another babysitter who could in the sense of being omnipotent, then maybe you ought to hire that babysitter, assuming that babysitter is loving, of course. But I don't think such a babysitter exists. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> I just love how uh, how complicated we're making, how, how thin we're stretching this metaphor now.
1: Yes, <laughs> it's fun though, isn't it? <laughs> so um, it is the case that the God I believe in can't single-handedly secure the safety of those who are under threat. And I realize that that troubles some people. Um, The alternatives, it seems to me, are two. Either there is no God, or there is a God who could stop those evils, but chooses not to. Now, I think there are reasons one should believe that there is a God based on certain uh, views of um, uh, teleology, certain views of moral responsibility and morality in general, based on religious experiences individually and uh, societally, et cetera, et cetera. And we, I could lay those all out if we want to go that direction. But um, I think the for most people, it's the other alternatives that they're wrestling with. They think there might be some reasons to believe in God. They may not be clear on what those are. But the question is, can God prevent evil single-handedly, but chooses not to? Or is it the case that God can't? In fact, let me let me conclude this segment by or this what I'm saying here by uh, a little story. In fact, Justin might even know this person. Uh, Fifteen years ago or so, I was having a conversation with a colleague when I was a university professor, and this colleague and I were talking about this big issue. You know, God won't or God can't, and I was laying out the God can't stuff, and and this professor friend looked at me and half jokingly, half seriously said, you know, Tom, your God is just doing the best he can. (laughs) And I looked at him and I said, you know, your God could be doing a whole lot better, but chooses not to. (laughs) And fundamentally, I think that's the issue. I'd rather believe in a God who's doing the best God can, but can't single-handedly prevent evil than believe in a God who could prevent it but for some mysterious reason, is not. I wonder if we could,
2: you proposed a couple, you know, two different uh, alternatives here, right? There's the, the no God option and some form of omnipotence option. So this podcast comes out of the tradition of radical theology primarily. Um, so, you know, really appreciated the little uh, footnote to Thomas J.J. Altheiser, uh super <laughs> nice guy. Um, and a
1: few others, a few other radical
2: folks. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And you write in here, you say, um, but the death of omnipotence is not the death of God. I wonder if you could talk about why. So, you know, I'm thinking of somebody like Altizer, for example, where I think that there's a real sense in which trying to kill off something like omnipotence is part of what leads him to the embrace of the death of God, where he wants to empty transcendence because he, following, you know, I think very much similar arguments to yours, particularly in the section where you get a bit more political and you talk about the way that the omnipotent God in a sort of Schmittian sort of sense uh, provides justification for, you know, you know, basically dictators, right? That dictators are just kind of mini omnipotent gods. And I, I think for him, he really wanted to try to destroy omnipotence. And for him, he saw the death of God as necessary for that task. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you don't think that's the case. Like, what? how are we able to rescue God? Why? why not you know throw out the baby with the bathwater i guess is 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 maybe what i'm asking if we've lost omnipotence for many people we've functionally lost god at that point anyway because yeah. by god they mean an omnipotent being um and so why keep god how do we keep god i don't I'm not sure exactly what question i want to i want to pull out of this but I, I wonder if you could engage with people who's who completely would follow the first you know 90% of your book before you get to that right. last chapter and say and therefore god is dead um but you don't make that move and and i wonder why
1: yeah well here let me just begin by saying i have not read up on my death of god folks lately so forgive me for some of my ignorance but as i remember from reading hamilton altizer and those folks the phrase death of god could mean many things and for some it seemed to me to mean uh the death of the traditional god or the tr- death of the conventional god uh not necessarily absolute atheism or something like that. And I think and, Altizer,
2: I think, would be a real good example of that perspective. Yeah.
1: yeah. So in 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 the sense of, uh, you know, getting rid of the classical God or the God of conventional God, <laughs> this book is doing that in spades, right? Because <laughs> I'm getting rid of at least omnipotence. And, you know, my views of omniscience are, are not Uh, standard. My views of God's love is not standard. So the vision of God I present, I think it actually matches scripture better than the conventional God. So I'll, I'll sometimes make a biblical claim for this God, but it's not the God of classical theism. And it's not the God, as you rightly point out, that most people think of when they say God. So then the question is, why have an alternative? Why not just go the absolute atheism route? And I guess the answer then gets back to some of the things I was mentioning earlier about my intuitions, about there needing to be a foundation or a place to put ultimate values and meaning. There need to be some kind of a ultimate purpose in life, even though I don't believe in purpose and sort of a blueprint predestination kind of sense. But there's some sense that the uh, universe and my life might be being drawn towards something that's richer something that's more valuable, something more beautiful, and this call to love I feel. um, That's where I want to place the divine, and I'm willing to call this God, in fact, even a personal God in the sense of a God who's in real give and receive relationships with us. Um, So uh, I guess the short answer to your good question is um, I'm trying to make the best sense of reality, and the best I can do involves an appeal to a God of love.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a reasonable <laughs> response. I think I think it raises the question of, you know, what what exactly do you mean by love? Um yes. and maybe that's something we can talk about as well. Um, I'd be happy to, yeah. But just to pick up on something Justin was saying, you know, if if we get rid of the omni god, you know, even if we want to, if there's a commitment to prioritizing love, it seems to me you don't necessarily need a monotheistic God. And I wonder if you could maybe speak to uh, why we should hold to some sort of monotheism.
1: Yeah. Well, here I find attractive a modified version of perfect being theology. Most people, when they think of perfect being theology, they think it necessarily leads to something like classical view of God but I don't think that's the case. I think God can be conceived as that than which nothing greater can be conceived. And that God can be true without having the omnis that you rightly point out can be problematic. But um, if we can imagine a God, a a single God who is omnipresent, who knows everything that's knowable, but not the future, these kinds of things, who can have maximal power, um, then that perfect being seems to be can lean toward a monotheistic account of things. Now, by monotheism, I don't mean what many people mean by monotheism, which is that God is the only ultimate reality. I hinted at that earlier. I'm a person who thinks that there are multiple ultimates. It's just that they're not all divine. And so um, it's not the kind of we might call radical monotheism. Okay,
0: that's really interesting. Can you say more about that?
1: Well here I have to give credit to some of my teachers uh, at Claremont for introducing me to the ideas of what is sometimes called deep pluralism. And the idea here is that when we think about the multiple religions of the world, especially religions that don't have a theistic basis, well Buddhism would be a good example, although there's many versions of Buddhism and some of them have theistic bases, but anyway, we'll take the non-theistic versions of Buddhism. Um it seems as though the Buddhists are not aiming at knowledge of God because they don't even believe there's a God but they're aiming at something valuable they have something in the tradition that some wisdom uh, and we could cite other traditions as well now what many in the Christian tradition have tried to do in wrestling with the Buddhism or Islam or Jainism or Sikhism or whatever they've tried to kind of embrace what sometimes is called an inclusivist account which is to say well, the other folks say things about their ultimate reality as being different from God, but really they don't understand it. They're they're actually worshiping the same God we worship, we're, to use John Hicks metaphor, we're all going up the same mountain. We just don't know it until we get to the top. And then the Christian says, and at the top is what we thought all along. <laughs> but what the deep pluralist says is that there are multiple ultimates that Buddhists have a sense of the ongoing creativity, the the flow of history. And that doesn't, it's not the same as worshiping God. Or uh, the humanists might have a deep sense of the value of the entities of creation, especially humans, but they might expand it to, say, all creation. Or the futurists may rightly be attracted to the possibilities for what could be different in the future. That's not the same as saying they're attracted to God. And we can take seriously the multiple traditions of the world and believe that they are striving for something that is ultimate without reducing them all to just sort of, what what's Carl Rahner's phrase, anonymous Christians. Um, yeah.
0: If I'm getting you right, you want to reserve divinity for something that Is characterized by personhood, whereas these other ultimates are not personal in some way, right? Is that the distinction that you're that you're making fundamentally? Not quite, not quite,
1: because while it is true that creativity isn't personal and eternal objects or possibilities aren't personal, the humanist who values creatureliness, there can be creaturely persons. So in that sense, they would be personal. I would want to say that God, as I want to conceive God, is an omnipresent spirit who is everlasting. And I don't think any of those uh, characteristics will apply to, let's say, you know, the three of us. Uh, We're we're more than spirits. We haven't lived everlastingly, and we're not omnipresent. Uh, But we're persons, and God's a person. So there'd be some additional sort of attributes I would want to put on these attributes to distinguish them further. Oh, I'm sorry, that I would want to put on these ultimates to distinguish them further.
2: So one thing that I've noticed, you know, you reject omnipotence, but you've talked somewhat positively about uh, omnipresence. You said you have a sort of ambivalence with, you know, divine knowledge, things along those lines. One that hasn't come up, but that I'm really curious uh, for your thoughts on is immutability. Uh, uh, is something yeah. that running through this. I couldn't get a good sense whether you're kind of going the process route, which is largely, at least, most process people I've read or worked with, um, pretty much abandon immutability, sort of the way you do omnipotence. Or do you have a, a sort of a different approach in mind? How does how does change function at the divine level
1: in your um, in your theology? I think God is immutable in God's nature but mutable in God's experience. So I call this God's experience essence binate. So I think God has an everlasting eternal nature that is unchanging, unaffected by anything, but God is also an experiential being and everlastingly experiencing, and that experience is affected, does change moment by moment. I call that God's essence experience binate. And
2: how do we not end up with a, a sort of a schizophrenic God in a certain sense, right? Yeah. Uh, in the sense of there's the part of God that, you know, feels the suffering, has that experience. And then there's the part of God that is sort of protected, bracketed away from the the sort of mundane experiences. How are these these two pieces integrated in a way that doesn't end up sort of creating basically two two gods, right? Yeah, Almost yeah. an Arianism, right? Split You've got
1: personality the... disorders, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, well, the way we do it is we don't say they're parts of God. We say, or at least I say, I'll speak for myself. I say that the immutability refers to an abstract essence, and the mutability refers to God's changing experience. So to use an analogy that is not a perfect one, but I, I think you guys will get it, The three of us have exchanging experiences. Who we are today is not who we were 30 years ago. But just for a moment, and I know this is controversial, just for a moment, let's say there's such a thing as a human nature. And that human nature applies to the three of us, has since whenever it begins, conception, birth, whatever you want to give it but this human nature has remained unchanging while experientially we've changed moment by moment. We wouldn't say there are two parts of us, our human nature and our human experience. We would say our human nature is the abstract way we talk about that which makes us human, and our experience is the changing events in our lives that, you know, create the particular ways that we are human. And so the same analogy applies to God, although the analogy isn't perfect. I think God actually is one who has an eternal nature, and I'm Darwinian. I don't think you and I – I don't think there's a such a thing as a human nature, but we could chase that rabbit if you want to. But you, I think you get the uh, yeah. arguing for no,
0: it. No, that's helpful. I mean, I, as I understand it within a sort of more Whiteheadian scheme, and I'm not accusing you of being a Whiteheadian, you know, God forbid, but um, – <laughs> Like God is a is a creature. So if, if creatures are subject to change, why wouldn't God be subject to change? And it makes me think of just in, in terms of a sort of maybe a helpful differentiation would be between sort of a genetic account and a phylogenetic account or something like this in terms of the divine.
1: Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I wouldn't want to say God's a creature, although Whitehead does say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I don't want to say God's a creature because I want to reserve the word creature as something to do about a, a entities that have a beginning and end. And I think God as a person has a series of divine experiences that are everlasting. But anyway, when Whitehead's talking about God as creature, he's making the kind of point you're you're wanting to make there about there being similarities between God's experience and our experiences.
2: So we've moved into this creator creation, Um, you make a really interesting passing note on page 56, you say, God never exists without creation, I think is maybe one of the more radical claims I think you make in the whole book. In some ways, I think that's more radical than rejecting omnipotence, but I think it'd be so easy to skirt past it. I I had a couple of possibilities because you don't really unpack it in the book. So I was hoping to to sort of see where you wanted to go with that. And so I was wondering, you know, are you advocating a divine Genesis or which it seems like you're not um, based on what you were just saying. Um, So are you advocating in some sense, the eternality of creation or at least the eternality of like a primordial matter in a way like Catherine Keller would talk about it. What, what exactly do you mean by that claim that God never exists without creation?
1: Yeah, I've written about this in other books, and maybe I'll I'll send you something longer after we're done here so you can get more of the details of my argument. My argument is similar to Catherine's, um, but I make some changes, some, some explicit language she might not like, so I won't say it's the same as Catherine's. My argument is that God has everlastingly been creating that which is other than God in relation to what God created previously. So I'm rejecting creation out of nothing. I'm saying God is the everlasting creator. But I don't like the phrase that there's an eternal world or eternal creation, because that sounds to me or, or there's an infinite regress. I don't I really hate that one, but let's start with the first one. The reason I don't like an eternal creation or even a primordial creation is it sounds to me like it's saying that there's something about creation. the the creaturely stuff, the universe is eternal. But I think it makes sense to say that our universe began with a Big Bang roughly 13 billion years ago, but there was something prior to that Big Bang, the chaos of a previous universe. And so here I'm drawn to Whitehead's notion of cosmic epics that are everlasting, except that I insist on the notion of God being the creator of each epic at each moment but never out of nothing. So sometimes, uh, I don't know if you guys know the name of Schubert Ogden. He was a process person down at Southern Methodist. He would affirm creation out of nothing, but just say, well, it's creation out of nothing moment by moment, uh, everlastingly. And I don't think that helps us because that gives the impression that God could up and do anything God want to in any moment. And then the problem of evil just floods right back in. So I want to say that there are metaphysical principles that apply to every universe everlastingly, but those principles aren't actual entities. The actual entities of every moment and every universe have a beginning and an end, but they're a part of an eternal or everlasting series of entities, worlds, or universes. Here's my really bad illustra- or analogy for this one, all right, Justin? <laughs> um I'm a photographer and I spend a lot of time in the outdoors doing nature photography and here in Idaho we have about a half a dozen wild horse herds and I like to hike out to them and photograph them and imagine that there's a wild horse herd here in Idaho with a stallion that can live 10,000 years. And imagine that stallion is mating with the mares in the in the herd, but the mares can only live, you know, fifteen to twenty years, an average lifespan for a horse. And of course, the stallion mates with the mares, foals come out. Some of them are fillies, some of them are colts. Uh, but the fillies grow old enough to that they mate with the stallion, and they have foals, etc. In this sort of series, a, a stallion that lives ten thousand years can have relations with lots of different mares over that time, and those mares are born and then die, but conceive others, etc. And what stays constant is the stallion, the mares come and go. Let's use that analogy then for God and creation. I think God everlastingly creates. Worlds come and go.
2: We, 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 we get our uh, MCU multiverse then.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I am committed to a multiverse of successions. I'm not committed, in fact, I think it's irrational to think of an infinite set of simultaneously existing multiverses. So I, I'm okay with simultaneous multiverses as long as it's not infinite, but I think there's metaphysical uh, principles that are going to obtain to any universe whatsoever. And so the word infinite suggests that there's things that even metaphysics can't constrain. Uh,
0: I don't want to make too much of the uh, the metaphor because I know it's just a metaphor, but I'm thinking about the stallion who lives for ten thousand years. Um, putting aside the ethical yeah. shenanigans that will go on if we're applying a sort of human, yeah, <laughs> um, thing, it seems a little bit scandalous. Um, <laughs> but also, that is there something in that in that sort of gendered rendering that is just kind of part and parcel of the? I'm not sure how I want to say it the unchanging character of, of God. I don't, I'm not sure that's really a well-formulated question. I'm just kind of picking up on (laughs) something in the, in what you were saying there, Justin, can you help me out, man?
2: Yeah and I I think I I see what you're you're getting at Matt right there's a way in which universality right you know this goes back all the way to second wave feminism in like the 40s 50s 60s this idea that discourses of universality have a sort of gendered component to them so I'm thinking of somebody like Mary Daly for example where part of her recourse to the language of goddess is to be able to think of of, of a divine that dies right that there's this birth and death as part of the, the life cycle of the divine, as, a, as an alternative to this, the sort of masculine eternality of the traditional classical theist God in a certain sense. Um, so, I mean, at least I took your question maybe as as asking the question, is something of that um, sort of structural masculinity survived the death of omnipotence, perhaps, hmm. is maybe hmm.
1: a, a way of putting it? Yeah, I hesitate to use the language of masculinity and femininity, in part because I know of females who embrace a un- the universal uh, attributes of God, both in the kind of tr- open and relational tradition that I'm a part of, people like Nancy Howell, for instance, or people in more you know standard um, or conventional theologies. But I-, I-, I do think there's something to this notion. I wouldn't put it in terms of masculinity, femininity, or gendered, but I would say um, as radical as my ideas might seem to some people, there's also a side of them that does make connections to, we'll call it, classical views of God. So, for instance, when I talk about immutability, I didn't reject it outright. I said God is immutable in some respects and not others. I would say the same about impassibility. When it came to power, I didn't do the John Caputo or Jack Caputo thing, you know, uh, God has no power, which sounds he seems to be saying sometimes. I've got a God who does have power, in fact, maximal power, except it's uncontrolling kind of power. Um, so I'm I'm playing with the tradition in ways that critique it radically and unpull the carpet out of some of it, but I'm not throwing everything out. I'm still keeping some aspects, and that might make some people uncomfortable if you know they're in the radical in the radical arms of the death of God movement. Uh, but it's the best way I can make sense of uh. Of metaphysics, scripture, my experience, and other things.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I mean, it makes you a slippery little devil.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Angel, angel is what you meant to say. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: (laughs) however you want to think about yourself is (laughs) fine.
2: so with, with an with an eye on the clock, I know we're not gonna we're not gonna hold you up too much longer, I suspect. um but I I think we would be remiss if we didn't spend a little time talking about your notion of material mental monism uh oh, nice. just in the sense that probably of every part of this book that's the piece that resonates, I think most directly with the kinds of conversations we tend to have on this podcast um and so I'd be really interested in, what exactly you mean by material mental monism and how you differentiate it from um, some of the other sort of related ideas. Um, So, you know, bipolar monism, things along those lines.
1: Yeah, mostly uh, the differentiations are linguistic and not substantive. So, um, you know, I'm attracted to what most people call panpsychism or what David Griffin called pan-experientialism, but I don't like those labels. I don't like panpsychism as a label because it sounds to me like everything that exists is mental. All things are psychic, you might say. And it even sounds as if there's some kind of complex, maybe even consciousness. And I just don't think that the smallest entities of reality have consciousness. I think they have a degree of mentality. So I think the word panpsychism is misleading. Pan-experientialism was David Griffin's attempt to get around that and I think he rightly I'm I'm committed to the notion that fundamentally the basic units of reality are drops of experience to use the language of William James but I don't think the phrase or the word uh, pan experientialism gets at the heart of the debates most people have about you know questions about the relationship of mind or you know mind and body and those things so one alternative is the dipolar uh, yeah, dipolar monism, and a number of people use that. I think of uh, uh, John Polkinghorn. That I think more clearly identifies the, the the two aspects, but it doesn't tell you what they are. So my attempt to talk about material mental monism is to get all the key words in there <laughs> that I think all everything that is uh, actual has both a mental and a material aspect. Uh, Sometimes I say mental and physical, but I like the alliteration of material mental modism. (laughs) Uh, But even though these two aspects obtain, they are not two things, but they're monistic. Um, And what I'm doing in the book here, uh, in which I bring this up, is to try to get at a number of difficult questions related to God's activity in the world. A number of people will say, yes, God is in real relationship with uh, us because we have minds, but uh, God controls the rocks and the ants and whatever else because they don't. Or they have a hard time imagining how there can be real divine influence in the water or other places if the water has no capacity for um, uh, perception or prehension to use the whiteheading categories. So my bring in material mental monism is attempt to talk about divine action at all levels of existence from the simplest to the most complex, and then give an account for how all entities of existence from the simplest to the complex can respond to that divine action. Oh, and one other thing, and to say that God has both mental and material dimensions, which is a big thing for me.
0: Yeah, I think that is a big thing. And I want to ask you, about that um uh on 130 you write i agree with those who say god is a universal but invisible spirit without a localized body um so there's an emphasis here on spirit but you're still kind of wanting to hold on to some sort of some minimal sense of corp i am going to say (laughs) the corporeality I, i did it right um but once you understand God as having a sort of material aspect. For me, it raises the question of, well, how exactly does that work? What does that look like? What do you mean? To what extent is material divine or vice versa?
1: I don't think all materiality is divine. I only think God's materiality is divine.
0: Yeah. Can you parse that out for me?
1: So I'm not a pantheist. I don't think that creation is God. Um, I want to make a distinction between creator and creation. And I'm doing this, you know, as a hypothesis. So I obviously don't know this to be the case. I mean, that's theology. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, um, so you know, I'm, to use language, I'm sure your listeners know I'm a panentheist rather than a pantheist. I think that there is a being who is a universal spirit, who is God. And I call that being divine but i don't think any of the rest of us or the whole universe is god so i don't call that divine Um, oh i forgot what your first part of your question was Uh, oh oh um so one of the issues that i was working through as i was writing this book is how i want to talk about god as a universal spirit that has a material dimension because as you rightly ask point out in asking your question most people think of those as incompatible, right? <laughs> Most people think of a spirit as not having any materiality. Um, so I begin to imagine what aspects of existence that we would all probably accept as not divine, if you know, unless you're a pantheist, uh, would accept as um, material, having dem- material dimensions, but not perceptible by our five senses. And things came to mind like air. You know, we don't see air, but probably most people would say it has a material dimension. It's got hydrogen, oxygen in it, right? And that seems to have materiality. Or maybe, uh, maybe this isn't as good an anal- analogy, but maybe a scent. If you smell the something cooking, you might not see that, but you probably think there's a material dimension there that somehow is being perceived by your knows. Uh, Or more controversially, if you think humans have minds that are distinct from their brains, which is controversial, but I think fairly widespread, then if you think those minds can't be perceived by our five senses but have a material aspect, then you have a way to understand how minds and brains can interact and not be different in ontological kind. So back to the material mental monism. And then I'm taking that and then just applying that to God, just, you know, making the, making the bold claim, (laughs) God is an invisible, imperceptible by our five senses, universal spirit who is active influencing creation and being influenced by creation uh, and yet uh has a material aspect just like our minds might
2: and so can we point concretely to like what is that material aspect right is it is this going back to the panentheism so it's like kind of within matter itself that it's sort of spread throughout everything or can you point to the sort of divine pineal gland or something um what, <laughs> yeah. what is that that point of 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 linkage where where do we find the incarnation I guess is another way of putting it <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, the claim is you can't perceive it with your five senses, so you can't find it in the perceptual, the the usual, the sensual perceptual sense. The claim is a metaphysical claim that God is literally present to everything in all creation, and that every entity is influenced by God. There wouldn't be a particular aspect of, let's say, a cell that has the pineal gland of God. (laughs) Rather, It's it's not the Higgs boson. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, yeah. But rather, it would go back to the material mental monism claim and then the experiential claim. So if it's the case that those cells are drops of experience, like William James said, and those drops of experience have a mental and physical or material dimension, then God being in them or influencing them would be in the sense of God influencing them as experiential agents. So just like right now, I am in both of you because I'm influencing you as we have this conversation, but there's no pineal gland in the back there that I'm entering you. I'm in your experience moment by moment. So the claim would be that God is a universal spirit of love, is in all creation, influencing all creation because all creation has an experiential dimension
0: and and is it that not to make too much of this but you since you said you're in us um <laughs> are you in us to the extent that um i allow you to be in me and in in that sense uh, i i have gone beyond a sort of privative mode um and yeah. therefore i'm i'm participating in the uh the whatever in the ordiness of this conversation
1: <laughs> yes you are um i think there's limits to Uh, how much you can keep me out. So I believe in an interrelated universe and that you and I are inevitably affected by others, but we do have some degree of of constraint. So if right now you're just tired of being influenced by me, you hit the end thing on your Zoom account, all of a sudden my influence of you is diminished significantly. Uh, So you have some choice, but you don't have any choice in being influenced by something or someone. That's just the nature of what it means to exist. exist,
0: Before we kind of move on to uh maybe something else in the conversation, I just want to say that one of the things that I've learned about you and that I really appreciate you is that you have pretty firm commitments and don't shy away from really difficult questions and handle them very graciously. And I really love that about you. Um I disagree with you. (laughs) (laughs) Um I wanted to ask you about something maybe that's a little bit more personal. And and it's something that, frankly, I don't know a whole lot about. But I've heard that within the Church of the Nazarene, you've you've had some difficulties. Um, And in fact, um, if I'm getting this right, you have been had charges of uh, heresy lodged against you. Is that is that correct?
1: Yeah. um... Is this a
0: sensitive subject? Should we not talk about it?
1: No, we can talk about it. I, I, you buttered me up by saying that I'm very upfront about my views. Now I can't you know, <laughs> back down. <laughs> no, I wouldn't back down anyway. Um, yeah, so uh, really the best way to talk about this is to tell a story, I guess. Okay. Um, in 2014, 20, 2013, 2014, the president of the college or the university that I was working at put me through a theological trial. He was getting complaints from people, and he had reasons to want to get rid of me, because for his own agenda of um, things. And I had to answer 66 questions that he presented to me, based on uh, what people had given to him, et cetera, and wrote a long document. And then went uh, in front of what they called an investigative committee, which I think of as a trial. Two individuals, they laid out my case. I made my arguments. They came back with their verdict, and their verdict was there's some things that we you know, don't agree with, but they didn't call me a heretic. They said, you know, we have questions about things. but he didn't close, close one. Yeah. <laughs> well, it turns out the president wasn't good enough for the president. <laughs> so the president called me into his office in uh, the spring of 2014 and said, um, you know, I'm going to get rid of you uh, unless you want to go to another trial. Uh, You're, you know, you need to find another job and basically gave me a choice, either another trial that the local district superintendent was apparently going to bring about, or uh, I find another job. So I thought about it for a week, talked to my wife and came back and said, bring it. I'll take a trial and started preparing for that. Um, Went into that summer thinking the trial would be that summer. It never developed the uh, president brought me in just before fall saying well i guess you're going to have you teach so i went that whole year never find almost the whole year i went to uh, april 1st of the next year waiting for a trial on april 1st i received a note from the president saying that i had been let go and the reason he gave was a reduction in enrollment and everybody knew that was not really the case Um, the faculty of my university uh, met and because of this and some other things gave him a 77 percent no confidence vote within about two weeks of my being laid off and within another two weeks after that he resigned from his position I thought I might get my job back, but um, the trustees of the university met and many of them still wanted me gone because they thought I was too controversial. So I eventually decided I would agree to a settlement that allowed me to find three or, or three years to find another job. So that was the heresy or the heresy trial. I lost my job there.
0: Man that's quite a, quite a long while ago. I didn't I didn't realize that that was kind of ancient history. So I mean you you seem to be thriving. <laughs> I could be wrong about that. I mean, but
1: Yeah. Well, this is a story and that's the first of three chapters. Chapter 2 is that 2 years ago I faced another trial. Oh. This was uh, a trial in which some individuals had five ch- theological charges against me and one charge that I was queer affirming. So I answered the charges there. The five theological charges were very poorly constructed and without mm-hmm. basis. Mm-hmm. But the last one was definitely correct. I am queer affirming. And I went in and to a, a thing they call a, uh, uh, I think it's also called an, uh, a hearing, an investigating hearing. I call it a trial and my district superintendent is upset that I call it that. But it's basically that's what it was. Two hours of me answering questions. And instead of saying, you know, well, I just came out and said the denomination needs to change. Mm. We need to become LGBTQ plus affirming. And um, the committee heard my case. Their job was to recommend whether or not I be disciplined to what we call the district advisory board. And they came back and recommended that I not be disciplined, which surprised everybody. Mm. But there were some people on the board who didn't like that. And uh, last August, so August of this year, 2023, I um, I was given a third set of charges. and This one specifically to do with LGBTQ stuff that I'm teaching against doctrine of the denomination, and that I've conducted myself in a way unbecoming of a minister in my advocating for queer people, which includes editing with my daughter, a book of 90 essays with the title why the Church of the Nazarene should be fully LGBTQ plus affirming. So uh that third chapter is the one I'm in right now. They told me I was going to trial in the fall of 2023 and I've still not heard anything. So um there you go. Yeah,
0: thanks for <laughs> thanks for thanks for sharing that. I I didn't realize that this was an, an ongoing saga. So I've I've learned a lot um from from that and I appreciate you sharing it. Justin, um, do you I- want to? Go ahead.
2: I was just going to hop in here just so I I mentioned in passing, I went to Eastern Nazarene College. So I was I was uh, in the Nazarene church for a a decent chunk of time. Um, And I know that within my sort of wing of the church, these events hit were quite significant ripples all the way on the, uh, on the Eastern coast. You were uh, very much the topic of conversation. I particularly, I think it was your dismissal from your position, as well as out closer to my neck of the woods, the uh, gradual and then rather abrupt uh, pushing out of Carl Guyberson out of Eastern Nazarene Mm -hmm. college. Um, Often these two were sort of held as linchpin moments um, within the Nazarene church and where exactly it was going to land uh, and were, you know, Seen by many, I you know I would put myself in this as as a pretty ominous sign for the nomination, which I still remain hopeful that there is possibility of change in you know people like you and uh, Keegan Ozinski and 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 folks like that uh, yeah, doing doing great work, but uh, definitely it was a sobering series of of, of blows to um, I guess you could call it like the liberal wing of of the Nazarene Church or whatever language you might want to
1: use. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. One of the essayists for this book is a guy named D. Kelly, who is pastor at the San Diego Church of the Nazarene, a pretty big congregation. And when he uh, wrote his essay, he sent a copy to his district superintendent, who promptly brought him to trial. And there's been appeals and all that sort of stuff. And just in the last week, he's found out that his appeals uh, have not been effective. And so Mm -hmm. he's lost his credentials. And I suspect others will follow.
0: I can't speak to the Nazarene experience. I've never been a part of it, but um, I did grow up in the Salvation Army and still am part of oh. part of that. And I will say, at least, it sounds like there's a process. And it's something resembling a conversation, yeah. um, which I can't <laughs> so- say for the Salvation Army. It's very much kind of Ooh. don't ask, don't tell kind of shit going on over there.
1: Yeah, you're <laughs> so um, authoritarian too in the Salvation Army. It's just that hierarchical crap, really.
0: Yeah, no, that's right. No. They, they make too much of the uh, paramilitary metaphor. They're, they they, yes. re- they think they're actually generals and shit.
1: But you know what? There is a pretty thriving queer Salvation Army movement in uh, Australia. Australia. Yeah. Yeah. They've interviewed me on some of their stuff and I was really surprised.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I I, a few years back was um, on the academic job market, which is, you know, the deepest circle of hell Um, and uh, was applying to. A Wesleyan University, uh, whose name I, I will not specify, um, <laughs> but uh, it was for a theology position. And in the application materials, they actually had a set of uh, basically doctrine questions that they wanted you to answer. And there was uh, definitely a without name dropping you a an award question on there about I, relational theology and all of that. And uh, so you that. are uh, you should be proud that you, are, you are, are, are a filter keeping good theologians out of bad universities. <laughs>
1: that's hilarious. Oh, (laughs) and, and sad too, at the same time. I don't want
0: (laughs) to. Well, unless there's anything else that you want to touch on, was there anything that we we should have asked you, but we didn't.
1: Well, you know, you briefly mentioned something that I also briefly address in the book that I think is pretty big deal um, and maybe of interest to your listeners. And that is the political dimensions of omnipotence. Um, I have written about the problem of evil in various books but one of the things that's new about this book there's lots of new things but one of the new things is my attempt to to tie together the christian especially but it would be true of islam as well the christian liturgies that sing the praises of an omnipotent god that says god is almighty that you know i attend church pretty faithfully and you know, I sing the songs and I, I, I evaluate the lyrics and time and time again in the liturgy and the lyrics of worship, God is portrayed as omnipotent, as one who's rescuing us, who does mighty deeds and can, you know, fix things single-handedly. But I think this way of thinking about God actually feeds into the kind of domineering, dominating politics. The the
0: uh, state of exception. Uh,
1: yes, that state of exception is a, a perfect example of this. And so in this book, I try to give examples of how politicians have used claims about an omnipotent God to justify their dastardly deeds, their authoritarian tactics. I mean, after all, if God is omnipotent, God is either placing into power those who are there, or at least allowing them to be there. And either one is either an explicit or an implicit nod of approval to the crap that Putin does and any other bad leader. Um, So I I try to show in this book that um, embracing omnipotence means that you're really saying God endorses all the bad leaders that you don't like. So (laughs) it's not a surprise to me that evangelicals, Like Trump and also like omnipotence. But those moderates and liberal Christians out there who think that Trump is a disaster, but who still cling to omnipotence, they need to rethink their theology. Uh, If you really think that God doesn't want Donald Trump in the White House or any other person, but we'll just pick on Trump for a second, um, then you ought to give up omnipotence and have a more consistent theology.
0: I think that's absolutely true. And I think it it kind of works in the inverse, right? Where having conversations with my father, for example, who's, you know, very much conservative, will make minimally um, theological arguments for uh, justifications for uh, Trump, but then will will not apply the same logic to other uh, administrations. So it goes both ways. But I think, you know, as Tad DeLay and others write, hypocrisy is the point. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm tired of – this is me complaining now. So maybe this is not Go the best way to end the interview.
0: You've earned it. You've earned it, Tom.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of hanging out with my Episcopalian, Anglican, Presbyterian, liberal Christian friends who – you know, say all kinds of crap about Trump and rightly so, but then mm-hmm. one insisted God is omnipotent. And I just say, come on now, think this thing through. Give up on that traditional word about God's power. You can still believe in a God yeah. who got who does stuff, but just give up on omnipotence and then you'll have a more consistent politic.
0: Yeah, I think it's important that we teach more Schmidt in, <laughs> in the church, just so we can kind of unpack all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, Well, Tom, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure speaking to you. I'm looking forward to seeing you uh, again at some point. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with? Um, Anything that you're up to uh, or uh, events that you want to let people know about? Any of that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for the conversation. I have really enjoyed it. It's gone directions that most conversations don't go. So thanks to both of you for that. Uh, events that are going on, man, I've always got stuff going on with the Center for Open and Relational Theology. But given the crowd that uh, listening to your stuff, um, Trip Fuller and I are doing a 10-city speaking tour, online class, and book called God After Deconstruction. And our first tour stop is with Catherine Keller at Drew. Uh, it'll be February, I think it's 9 and 10 of 2024. And um, there'll be Mm -hmm. information coming out in various places, Uh, actually by the end of the week that should be available, but I would like to, there'll be another one in Denver and in April, and then we'll be going around the country. Uh, So folks who care about uh, deconstruction, like Catherine Keller, that February event might be perfect for you.
0: That sounds great. and. I'm glad I asked the question because I, you know, I only live like 20 minutes from drew. Oh, so okay. I, yeah. I, I would well, love Jonathan
1: to Tom and is also going to be there. You know, Jonathan? Oh,
0: fantastic. I, you know, uh, I don't know him personally, but I know of his work yeah. and also seems like a great guy. Yeah. So I'd love to come over there and, and uh, say, hi.
1: Good, good, good. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was a real blast. Good. I enjoyed it too. Thanks to both of you.
0: Thanks Tom. Have a good one.